Welcome to Intersections, a podcast on behalf of Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry, exploring the many ways that faith and culture interact. Over the past several years, a clear effort has been ongoing to undermine the approach of history curriculum across the country at virtually every every level of education, often couched in language of being anti-woke or pro-American These efforts focus on teaching the quote-unquote right history, defined as history that promotes American values and pushes back against left-wing ideology. Joining us today to discuss the nature and impact of these attacks on history and curriculum in Oklahoma and beyond are Dr. Carlos Hill, the Regents Professor of the Clara Looper Department of African American Studies at the University of Oklahoma, and Dr. Brian Hosmer, professor and head of the OSU History Department. Welcome to both of you today. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to begin by asking each of you, what made you first be interested in history as an area of study? And then what led you to become a teacher of it? Because those might be two very different stories. Dr. Hill, would you start? Sure. I've always had a fascination with history, a childhood fascination with history. That followed me into college. And when I was in college, I had just the great fortune of having some great history professors, two professors that were just at the top of their fields in labor history and in the history of slavery and abolition, and just took as many classes as I could with them. And through just their mentorship, I kind of got an idea when I was in, in college that I would do what they were doing and and teach uh, history. And and so far, I've been able to do that. (laughs) (laughs) My inspiration came from from history faculty that I had the chance of taking classes with. Great. Yeah, some of my background or or interests really parallel Dr. Hill's. So I was always interested in history as a boy. My dad really was an avid reader of history. So I think that probably was part of the overall atmosphere. I think also my age had something to do with it. So I I was born in 1960. And as I was a elementary school person, um, there was a lot happening, right? There were, you know, there was civil rights, there was the Vietnam War, ultimately moving into Watergate and a variety of things. So I felt like I think that maybe that was part of what drove me this to this as well is just things that were happening around me. and I want to know more about them. I went to college uh, as a history major, but I wanted to be a Sovietologist. And uh, I was really deeply fascinated by, again, I was a child of the Cold War. And I remember seeing various individuals on television and, you know, scholars and so on. And they would have this so-and-so and and then underneath and say, Sovietologist. That sounds amazing. (laughs) And so I didn't really know what they did, but I knew that it was like kind of this cool detective work. And so back then, you know, the Soviet Union was such a closed society, they they would really sort of have to work with fragments of information, right? So that even things down to like the change of music on state program, they say, oh boy, you know, we just shifted the musical program. That means one of the one of the top guys just died, right? And so so I was really fascinated by that. So I went to college to do that and, and I went to the University of Vermont, which Interestingly enough, at that time, not only had a pretty major scholar of uh, Russian Soviet history, his name was R.V. Daniels, but also that was the Vermont was the place where Solzhenitsyn and uh, Sharansky and a lot of the dissident authors ended up. 
they lived in, in and so I met uh, Solzhenitsyn uh, as, as an undergraduate. Uh, unfortunately, my, my, either my aptitude or study habits for learning Russian really kind of got in the way of the Sovietologist part. And so like Dr. Hill, I had really encouraging professors who, who nurtured this other interest of mine, which is American Indian history. So I was always, inter- always reading that. And so that kind of, that kind of sort of one drifted to the other, but like Dr. Hill, I was really fortunate. I had some pretty amazing, amazing professors who, you know, this is decades ago, many of them are gone now, but I remained friends with them afterwards and just, you know, kept talking with them. And so they communicated that, you know, sort of encouraged me and then I, but it didn't really occur to me that I would be a teacher or a professor until I was in graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin. It was it was almost this kind of gradual merging of an avocation with a vocation where there was just mm-hmm. sort of this moment in time where I kind of realized, hey, wait a minute, I can actually I can actually have a career doing what I probably want to do anyway. So it yeah. wasn't like one moment. And then it, and so from that point on, then I, I, I sort of began to chart this path. So. I'm wondering as we get deeper into this conversation, you know, if we could set this up to a certain degree by having you each talk a bit about the the discipline of history, you know, so how is it studied? How is it verified? Uh, how is it, for lack of a, a better term, you know, sort of set in stone uh, if it is ever really set in stone? Uh, how do we arrive at historical fact? I think that's quite a misunderstood thing. People don't really appreciate or understand how the academic work occurs and how we get to the conclusions that we get to. So what constitutes history and and what history uh, gets taught, uh, so to speak. So it's kind of a broad subject, but uh, if you would speak to that, it would be fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll start, Chris, try to, I mean, we have to get really broad initially i used to teach the philosophy of history and you know in those classes i would teach the students about the social construction of knowledge right that knowledge is something that we um create through dialogue through interaction through discourse and so you know, when we talk about history and the nature of history and, and what is historical knowledge, we have to talk about it as history as something that historians collaborate, uh, discuss, right? And ultimately, we uh, peer review our own, you know, each other's work um, to ask those hard questions, to, to needle historians around particular facts so that the best possible interpretation emerges from that peer review or that evaluation. And so when we think about the historical discipline, um, it is collaborative, right? And it's rooted in sort of peer review. And so when we talk about things as knowledge, it's it's socially constructed through the field. Historians like me, historians like Brian, debating, discussing, evaluating, taking positions on. And so the so truth is never settled, but it there is a process for how we decide upon what are valid points or what are invalid points. That it's about, you know, the discourse that we're engaged in. 
I think that's great. And and I, I don't have an awful lot more to add to it, but I appreciate what Carlos just did about talking about collaboration and verification and the social construction of knowledge. And, and I think that's really a critical part to this. Uh, historians develop through our training a facility with the arguments that preceded us and the sort of range of conversations. We also develop a expertise in using source materials from documents to oral history interviews to images. So we kind of have this, we, you know, history, history is rooted also in the, in the, the collecting and assessment and evaluation of these source materials and then kind of their assembling, right? I mean, and so, and so in order to develop a narrative, or an argument, we have all of this material. And I often talk to students, I talk to these things, I'm sure Carlos does the same thing, is that, you know, there's all this stuff, right? The question is, what do you do with it, right? And so this is where training comes into place. And this is where peer review and collaboration and conversation are in place. And so I look at it as well as conference. I also see it as narrative, right? That there's a, that, that one of the really important parts of history is this narrative tradition. And, and we, we, you know, we're, we're engaged in um, seeking truth, I think, not truth, but engaging in this process of seeking truth through conversation, through conversation with one another and through conversation with the people who read what we do, right? So there's, so the narrative, I think, is really, really critically important. It's what distinguishes perhaps history, maybe from social sciences, or also maybe just from antiquarianism, right? Which is just but maybe a list of things, right? Sure. So I think that's, that's, I think, really a big and a critical part of it. I also want to just touch back to one of the things that Carlos mentioned about peer review. And I think this is a critical, critically important thing for us to talk about today. And in fact, it's something that has, that as a department head comes to me over the phone from parents and politicians who want to talk to me about how history is taught in my department by my colleagues. And there's this notion, right, that that um, historians are just sort of picking and choosing and deciding what they want to do, and they have their own personal agendas, and so they're just going to so they're going to arrange these these materials in ways that suit my own my own agenda or agendas of people that I like. And what I emphasize is that that's not what it is, right? And and that we we use our own analytical abilities, we use our own creativity, which is important and positive. But we're bound by professional standards. We are bound by right the, the the uses, the proper uses of material, and the search for truth and accuracy. And we are policed by our peers. And so I think that it's really important to emphasize that this isn't just this kind of free for all out there, yeah. and that people are just writing whatever they want. Right? We have actually professional standards that, you know, Carlos knows this as well as I do, you know, you can get some pretty rough feedback, you know, at times, you know, there's the, there's a, a, you know, cliche or a saying in, in history, which is the dreaded reviewer too. It's a, it's a shorthand for when you submit something and you receive the peer review and reviewer A is like, oh yeah, yeah, Hosmer's right on target, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then reviewer B has like 25 pages, (laughs) right. Of, of places where, you've gone wrong. And that can be annoying. And you may even object to it. And you may even sort of disagree with some of the points. But the larger point is, there is this process, right? Because that piece that's under review doesn't go anywhere. Right. At that point, unless you've addressed these concerns. So let me, I mean, that's a great 
you know, sort of launching point to talk about the myth is that you're out there just sort of doing this on your own and, you know, whatever. But that's actually, it is actually a reality. There are some people that are out there sort of doing this on their own. And so the, you know, a, a perfect sort of analogy from my perspective is to think about, can you find scientists who say that climate change is not happening? Yes, you can. Are they being reviewed by their peers? Are they part of that process? Are they doing anything where they're getting that feedback or paying attention to it in any way, shape, or form? Uh, likely not. Um, so people, again, don't understand that the the systems that are in place and the, and the process for that happening that gets you to arrive at a conclusion. I will say conclusion rather than truth because we... That's always sort of in in flux, from my understanding. You're always looking at yes. things. As new information comes in, of course, you make different conclusions uh, about that, and you arrive at a at a truth. This is this is our connection to, um, you know, sort of what I do from a theological mm-hmm. perspective is we arrive at a truth that's lowercase t truth, right. and um, you know we hold on to that with with how you would hold on to something that is lowercase t truth. Um, there are very few, with, right. We yeah. Very few it, capital you know, as, T as, right. as something that makes sense, but with some humility as well. Sure. Right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, is it, uh, the, the question that comes up a lot, and of course this goes here in this state to, to house bill 1775, um, and the question about teaching history and how we teach history and, you know, is it, is it possible uh, to teach history accurately and effectively, let's just let's just narrow it and say, is it possible to teach Oklahoma history or United States history accurately and effectively without making someone uncomfortable? I think the the main question is not whether we teach it or not. That's not the right question. It's why do we teach mm-hmm. history? It's it's why do we teach history? Why do we insist on school kids, high school students learning Oklahoma history? Why do we insist on doing that? Right. Let's go back to that. Um, why do we have to educate our children historically? Why do we need them to have a historical? It's not about teaching history as much as we need them to have a historical consciousness so that what happened yesterday the day before makes sense and is and they can relate it to today like they need a historical consciousness to do that right if you don't even if you know some history and you have no historical consciousness it's mm-hmm. for all for and so why we have to ask that question and fight over that because what we're doing right now makes no sense because we're not even arguing about why it's so important for them to learn. We're just talking about why we don't want them to learn right. certain things. Certain things, right. Yeah, I, I think that's fantastic. And I, and I would say that, that you know, with the, the framing of the question also, uh, it's not a point of, to me about whether people are comfortable or uncomfortable, right, through st- studying history. I mean, that's not really the goal, either one, right? I mean, you don't have a right to be comfortable or or uh, uncomfortable, or maybe you have a right not to be insulted. So I don't know. I think that Carlos is is right. The question is, why are we doing this? You know, one of the things that I, I 
maybe way that I try to illustrate this to my students because we I talk with them a lot about this and and in fact this concept of historical responsibility which is which is a kind of an interesting point and I try to describe to them that history is like a kind of inheritance and and so wherever you're positioned right you you have a piece of this and it's and it's and it's and it's part of your inheritance and so to move forward you need to understand something about that, right? What is that inheritance? But also you need to realize that the weight of history, if we use a different metaphor, falls upon peoples differently. And so we need to understand the variety. So history isn't one, it isn't one stream, right? It's it's many that, but they're that in some ways they're carrying, the stream is carrying all of us. But but the inheritance operates differently. So in order to be I would argue a functioning member of a, of a society, but also really of a culture or a community. We've got to understand sort of sort of that we are all right inheriting lots of things, and we need to try to grapple with that and think about it. So again, this is this is you know really following up and 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 amplifying, I guess, what Carlos said is that the why why study is really the critical thing, and you can. You know, we all develop the techniques in the class, but I spend time talking about that, right? You know, you know, who are we when you're born, right? One of the reasons that this often comes up in my classes is through the discussion of something uncomfortable and where students will say, at least the brave ones will say, why should I feel guilty about something that happened a long time ago over which I had no direct involvement? And my response is, fair enough. Right. Not really making that point, not making the point that you should feel guilty about this or feel pride on the other side. The fact is there is this is this broader inheritance. We are part of this culture. And so it's a con. So we need to grapple and understand with that. And I would add also that as one last piece to this, that that when you have an inheritance, you don't get to choose like which parts you like, which parts you're going to take. So one example that I like to offer students is like, well, look, you know, I didn't have any role, neither did you in writing the Bill of Rights, but I benefit from those things every single day. Well, then the other stuff counts too, right? And and so it's part of this mosaic, if you will, of things. So I try to have them think about like this, but I mean, it really is simply amplifying what Carlos just said. Why? Why study history? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it is a tension that we sort of hold, right? Uh, you just said it, Dr. Hosmer, which is, um, you know, we don't want to talk about the things that might make us feel guilty or uncomfortable or whatever the terminology you want to use, because I didn't have anything to do with that. And yet you inversely also want to teach all of this stuff that you likewise never had anything to do with uh, as a as a article of pride, right? So... Um, you can't have it both ways. Like, which, which, no, how are we going to handle also, this? Also, if you if you accept this idea about inheritance, it also translates to some obligation to be a responsible person in your life, right? So that's well, that. there's that too. Yeah. Um. So, uh, I I, I do um want to cover a couple of things because I think that uh, these are terms that get thrown out there a lot, and it's important for people to understand you know, what this is. So I will ask you, you know, what, uh, how you all would define critical race theory, knowing 
that it is really a legal term as much as anything, but it gets hoisted on you uh, all the time as history teachers. So in your uh, in your approaches, I, I surely you have been asked this question before, but how do you approach this? What is critical race theory? You want to go first, Carlos? You want me to go first? I mean, the term <laughs> critical race theory, there is no one definition of it. Um, it's a it is a a body of knowledge, right? A, a body of theoretical knowledge created by scholars in beginning in critical legal, what we can call critical legal scholars in the 1980s, Derek Bell maybe being mm-hmm. the most well known, but essentially trying to theorize about the permanence and the intractability of racism in America life, trying to understand why racism right anti-black racism has been such a a deep problem an intractable problem not just in one institution but throughout american institutions trying to understand that trying to develop a theoretical language to not only describe it but to upend it is the work of critical race theory it's truly um, about trying to uh, address racism in society, not trying to create more of it. You would think that critical race theory is doing that by how it's just really lambasted by you know pretty much everyone, but especially those on the right. Yeah. yeah and I you would think, think that would be a positive thing too, wouldn't you? You would think this would be something that people right. would want to engage in. Well, I think one of the really critical parts to this conversation is sort of one of the sort of one of the pieces of critical race theory, as I understand it. So put it that way, uh, that it focuses less on an individual's own sort of character and and views, whether a person is a racist or not, or holds racist views or not, and instead and it's, and instead focuses on institutions and structures. So the way race is embedded in the law, in housing, in education in all of these institutions that structure our society. And this is where this concept of structural racism, which also is deeply unpopular among some, is really, to me, extremely powerful. Mm -hmm. Because uh, to get back to what Carlos was saying, one of the, you know, people like Derrick Bell were, were looking around, right? And they were saying, we've have all this civil rights legislation, we've all these things we've accomplished, and yet we're, we're stuck. Right. There's a point at which. And so what they were trying to do, quite simply, as good scholars, why? Why are we stuck? Why is it there? And so they decided they 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 developed these ideas that moved away from individual character and assessments of and toward these larger structures. I think that's really powerful. And in fact, I think even critics of critical race theory you know, no, it's no, it's true, like redlining, right? They know this stuff is true, right? And and they fight with it. But I think one of the reasons they fight it is because the the prior view of focusing on individual character is in a way easy. And you say, well, you know, we just need to win over hearts and minds, or uh, those races just need to be isolated, whatever, because they're because of their personal beliefs. And so it it reduces it to a matter of, of sort of virtue or lack thereof. Critical race theory, I think, is is brilliant because it, say, it says we're not talking about whether 
this person or that person is racist. We're saying that it's bigger than individuals and that it shapes the ways that our institutions operate and therefore, right, precludes, restricts opportunity, changes discourse and conversations and and accounts for, you know, the 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 deep embedded and embedded issues that we have. It is a strike against this idea that American institutions and American society are colorblind, right? It's just that's it's just nonsense. So so for me, uh, you know, as a scholar of these kinds of things, and just as a citizen, I guess, the, the focus on structures is really important to me and, and, and instructive to me that it really helps me get closer both to diagnosing a problem or something I can get my hands on and right articulating a solution or at, or articulating action that might actually do something. I'm, I'm sure that is a very uh, frustrating question uh, that gets asked a lot. Um, yeah. And, and appreciate how frustrating it is. In, in many places, you know, CRT and, and, and woke mean the same thing, which is that yeah. it means anything I don't personally like. You know, yeah. Well, you're right, and and it is you know? uh, a, a very much um, a, akin to uh, theological debates I have with colleagues, especially people from you know opposite sides of the table, uh, where it feels like we are hardly ever talking about the same thing. Um, nope. So it becomes very hard to even have a productive uh, confrontational dialogue because you're talking about this and I'm talking about something else, and we can't even agree on that. But um, so you you did say something about th- that I think is an interesting you know twist, which is to think about um, uh, history and and think about you know so we have verifiable facts. So redlining is a great example of where we have verifiable you know factual data uh, that that point to this sort of systemic event you know happening. Um, how what's the relationship between that and and the narrative that gets woven around those historical facts and you know how does that decision get made and um you know within that within that process i think probably tied up in that question is what sources um do we use you know to add to that narrative or to push back against the narrative that we're trying to assemble i think i mean it's it's so much more complicated, um, Chris, when you really get into historical interpretation, like why do we ultimately understand history in a particular way? You know, why do we understand the American Civil War um, as, you know, as a as a war? Uh, let's put let me let me try to frame this as best I can. If we just take the American Civil War, um, some would argue that if we just think about it holistically, uh, we can talk about it as the war of northern aggression, right? The Civil War as the war of northern aggression, right? Rather than call it a civil Mm -hmm. war, right? And so even in calling it a civil war, 
is an interpretation, right? We're arguing essentially that the Southerners rebel, like even in that, that's an interpretation versus saying this was, it was the war of Northern aggression, right? Northerners, right, decided that Southerners could not, uh, excuse me, decided that they could not leave the Union and therefore they were gonna be forcibly brought back in, right? War of Northern aggression. And so historical interpretation is more than just fact, right? It's about our positionality, our identity, and what the quote-unquote facts mean, what the, what the happenings, what, what the, like the, the things that actually happen aren't just factual. They're also shaped by how we, by ideology, mm-hmm. by perspective. And so it's not as simple as, you know, X and Y happen and therefore it means this. We have to, when we start thinking about interpretation, we have to take into consideration identity, politics, um, all those things influence how we ultimately come to uh, think about the past uh, and create, and this is the key word, Chris, we could all have our own different understandings of the past, but ultimately our, our understandings coalesce and what we're really talking about is shared mm-hmm. understandings, shared understandings of the past that we often disagree on because of differences as groups in terms of group identity. We come to see the history similar ways. We begin to differentiate our, how maybe black Americans see the history of slavery versus white Americans. But again, is rooted in an experience, an identity, a culture. It's not just facts and data. It's actually a shared understanding of an experience passed on, sometimes in a classroom, sometimes in church, sometimes it's just around the water cooler. But I mean, I, I think we we there's this idea that we can get to a kind of a mathematical formulaic understanding of history. And and that isn't either going to happen. Yeah. Nor is yeah. it desirable in my view. Or desirable. Nor yeah. desirable. Uh, you know, wonderful. Great. That, that was awesome. And, and, you know, I could add just a couple little things. There is, we're all as professional historians, and I would argue just people who are interested in history uh, are involved in a long conversation that that extends back before we were around and encompasses many of the positions and the positionality that Carlos describes. And from the standpoint, let's say, of writing a book, right? So let's kind of get to sort of there. You know, the any any historian's work is shaped by who they are, their position, but also really shaped by the kind of questions that interest them, right? So, so you sort of, and those themselves are a product, let's say your graduate school training, your peer group, your community. And so, because you don't, you, you, be, you have to begin with a question. Most of us, when we write something, and if you ask, you know, why, you know, why did you write a book on X, Y, and Z? You can usually say, you can say, well, I was really curious about this. You know, that this was really interesting to me, this this event in history or these outcomes were really interesting to me. And the kinds of questions that I developed were were based on this body of reading that I did, so this evidence that I've absorbed, other professional and personal connections that I have that led me to really refine 
these kinds of research questions, right? So that's that's how we do we do this work as well. As Carlos has indicated, it's not just like a bunch of stuff, right? We have like organizing organizing principles in our minds that aren't just created out of whole whole you know whole, they're not created out of out of just out of the void, right? They're a product of all of these things that Carlos was describing. So it's a it's a real kind of complex uh, alchemy. And it's also one where this conversation ideally never stops, right? I mean, right. the whole right. the whole point is that we keep we keep doing this, right? And we learn more. You know, I've been at this for a long time, and and um, I'm excited all the time to learn new things, read approaches that hadn't really occurred to me, and and or or discover through maybe somebody else's work some body of sources that I didn't even know existed and now are being used in really interesting ways. So yeah. I feel like this is, this is the, the organic nature of it, right? And it continues. And we, and I think we, as historians like to nurture that, right? We want it. Let's keep the, let's keep it going, right? Let's keep the conversation going. Yeah. Um, Jesse, our, our podcaster usually, you know, kind of sits in the background of these recordings, which seems foolish from my perspective, because he's a, he's a great podcast host, uh, has a, a pod for good, uh, is his, uh, podcast and does some great work and, uh, but is also a history major. So when we had this topic, he, uh, was like, well, I want to ask a question. So Jesse. Hi everybody. Uh, to, hi to our listeners. My question has uh, my issue with teaching of history, especially in middle school and high school, has always been we've never done a good job of teaching the complexity of history to students. Right? We're able to we're able to talk about the complications in literature. We're able to talk about the complications in math, but we still just feed students f- facts and dates in history. And so, especially with this. Prager U discussion, all this kind of stuff. Is this just the next battle in the terrible way we teach history to young students? Yeah, so so I can I can maybe touch on some of these things too that 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 Carlos was describing, and particularly this notion of the relationship with the past and something that they can grapple with and hang on to is really, really powerful for young people. Uh, if we want to kind of double back to to things like Prager and and uh, current conversations. Uh, you know, as as Carlos mentioned, there's nothing new about Prager, right? So so Prager uh, is ideological, uh, and it is uh, a I suppose that it wants to be a version of state history, right? Of meaning the state, right? Official history, right? It, it proclaims that there is a central narrative, and there are specific things to say about particular events. They pick on. You know the the subjects that are that are, are most controversial are chosen deliberately, right? Because they're designed to provoke and 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 this sort of thing. Um, but I think that that along along with that, and maybe part of Jesse's broader question is the sort of tension that lies in the teaching of history, and 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 a, a, a tension between this. This thing that 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 Carlos speaks eloquently about and really moves me, which is sort of coming to um, 
absorb it and digest it and understand it and make it part of who you are, right? And, and internally and in the way you live your life, right? So it's something that's that's like that. And that's like maybe closer to narrative, closer to stories, closer to analysis. And then there's this other side that history is a set of discrete facts that are to be memorized. And they are to be memorized in order and they're being memorized in order and this and the and the list of facts, right? Of facts doesn't actually change, right? These were set a long time ago, and these are the things you need to learn about George Wash, et cetera, right? And I think that that's that that's attention. What's striking to me uh, is the the idea that the the list of facts approach is the one that people who uh, purport to want to um, improve history cognition, historical understanding, the one that they sort of touch on, say, we need just some facts, is, and Carlos, I'm sure, can can appreciate this, uh, the least effective way of doing it. Uh, you know, lists of facts are not interesting, uh, and, and they're not interesting because there's no story, because there's no meaning, because there's no emotion, there's nothing, right? It's just a list of stuff. And so in some ways, that's kind of the paradox of this. We've been through this before. Uh, and in fact, prior generations of historians and historic horse history teachers pushed back against older versions of that mm-hmm. and said, we've got, they used to say, we need to make history relevant, right? How, and there was a big discussion in the 70s about relevant education. And, and this was part of the new, what was then the new, very old, right? The new left right back then was really focused on changing pedagogy and having people really, really come to embrace their, you know, their, their participation in this society and engage with these really complicated issues. And it was a reaction to a prior you know, a prior generation that had a static list of facts. So we've seen this before. It is, I think, dangerous for a number of reasons. I mean, it's I think it's injurious to just education generally. Uh, I also think that it is um, it's dangerous because it positions itself and claims facts. It claims truth as its own. And so consequently is used as a weapon, as a way to diminish the larger sort of more interactive, more, I would argue, interesting and powerful and instructive kind of history that Carlos is describing that has a flow to it. Right. And and so it is there is there is another to me uh, fairly um, destructive and nefarious intent. It is designed to marginalize and say by claiming fact, these are the facts. And we've just talked a lot about facts and we've talked about all these sorts of things, but I think that's a really important part of this. I wanna offer one other piece of just a a personal experience. So one prior, much smaller, less scary, I suppose, dimension of this was no child left behind. And my daughter was entering elementary school right at the front end of no child left behind. And so we, my wife, who's also an educator, and I observed. And we found, we, as we were observing, like the way she was being taught history, and it was increasingly this valorization of the quote-unquote founding fathers, you know, blah, 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 that sort of thing. And we found that every year that she encountered that same narrative, her knowledge of, of history and interest in history declined. She, I mean, in fact, we were saying, 
Megan knows less history this year than she did last year, right? And so this is really, I think, kind of a, a an important part of this and so a fairly insidious aspect of this, right? I mean, that, that it's really deeply problematic and it doesn't, it doesn't improve history education. It is a weapon mm-hmm. that is deployed, right, against, right, kinds of conversations that some don't want to have. It takes us back to the, the original, you know, why do you teach history? Why you would want to reject critical race theory, why you would want to reject any of things like, you know, why you would want to control a narrative about those kinds of things, because listening to that information, listening to that trauma, hearing that story, of course, is going to create in people a need to shape something, right? So it's for people who look like me who are in power, um, now we really have to look at the systems that we have created and the systems that we participate in and, and, and have to change those things. Um, you have to, you've seen the reaction to talking about what I think is a pretty crystal clear example of the need for reparations right here in the city of Tulsa. Uh, and the reaction to that, um, that, that wants to just set all that aside because you, you, you can, you, you can't, um, you know, really move forward with honesty if you go ahead and accept all of that stuff. That has to be compartmentalized in some way or has to be set aside or has to be discredited or something has to happen with that um, in order to uh, mediate that obvious tension uh, that, that sits there. Chris, let me ask you. Can you imagine um, if America experienced 9-11 more than 20 years ago and we just collectively walked away without any kind of accounting, like any kind of like, what just happened to us? Yeah, This was the horrific thing that has happened to us. Like if we had, if we just said, you know what, that just happened and we're not going to do, we're not going to invest any time, energy and effort into really, in one morning has reverberated for more than 20 years. You can even see in that, the the ways that we are, you, you look now for the fight that people are having to go through to try to get 20 years later to try to get care for people who've had lifelong cancer or illnesses or disease, you know, from the 9-11 recovery time. And that's just 20 years, right? So you see how insidious that can be over a long period of time and how more we want to bury those things, right? Right. And and not talk about it. You know, and, and, you know, another, another aspect and Carlos is sort of referring to this as well when he's speaking about trauma and healing and 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 also historical responsibility if we really want to talk about that right not talking and speaking honestly about the trauma and the very real abuse faced by people not talking about it is in fact right doubling down on that same abuse right it is re-victimizing right adding to right the trauma every day right, then that's one of the implications here as well, right? We're not going to talk about that. Yeah. Thank you. We... um, Thank you, Carlos. Thank you, Carlos. 
that's that is what history can do for us is mm, we we awesome. can't get anywhere else without processing that um without doing something about that wound um whether it's that wound or that there's a myriad of others that we could talk about from a historical perspective um that that talking about history as the um uh collection of your accomplishments leaves a whole bunch of history out um that is necessary stuff just think about if it was your family and this is how you constructed your family we only talked about our accomplishments we didn't talk about anything else mm -hmm. well unfortunately as a pastor i know some families like that and it doesn't really work out very well uh, moreover if we term. want to think about about you know the the importance of history listing only the accomplishments of one society leaving the trauma out really kind of sidetracks much of the power of history work right history actually has the capacity to work through these things and to have us grapple with these things and in a sense we're we're sidetracking right we're we're uh sidelining uh the 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 power of actually grappling with our past to to um uh, to move us forward, I guess is one way to put it, right? And I think that's a really important aspect of this. And we do see this in other areas. 9-11 is a good example. There are others, other examples that we can kind of think about that that really are generative uh, of deeper conversations. Um, and, and it's instructive uh, which which of these stories will will devote time and energy into and which will say that was in the past. I don't really want to talk about that anymore. That's instructive too. The choices that are made. That's right. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you very, very much for your time. This has been a, a great conversation, a very needed conversation. Here is to hopes that that will be ha had in many other places uh, in and throughout our culture here, because that's certainly a needed thing. It is helpful for us to understand that this is not something new. It, it is we've a struggle. We've been through this before. We, that we've is, been here. We, as yeah. historians, we've been here before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess that's both, that's both, <laughs> that's both hopeful and depressing at the same time. Right. The 1950s, you know, in the 1950s, professors were getting fired. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, at, at prominent universities yeah. and, or in the, uh, or conversely not getting hired in the first place right. at prominent universities. So, we can maybe look at our own, the history of the historical profession and say, we've, we've been here before. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Well, thank you both for your time, for being guests on here and, and really I'm giving grateful. us some great, uh, great information. So thanks again. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate it. Carlos, thank you so much. That was, that was fabulous. I really enjoyed yeah. listening to you. Intersections is recorded throughout the city of Tulsa, an estate which was once home to the Apache, Arapaho, Caddo, Comanche, Kiowa, Osage, and Wichita tribes. Tulsa now sits on the boundaries of the Muscogee, Cherokee, and Osage nations. Thank you for joining us for Intersections, a production of the Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry. Intersections is produced and edited by Ramp 9 Productions and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts.